Welcome to the Darwin Unenthusiasts podcast, where I'll be talking about why I hate Darwin and why you should too. Hi, I'm Sanjana, and I would like to welcome you to the second part of the history of evolution, where I will be detailing, you guessed it, why Darwin sucks. Why does Darwin suck, you may ask? Well, lucky for you, I did the research. I did all the research, and I got the receipts. This is The Science of Yesterday, a podcast where I trash on Darwin. Okay, I can already tell that this episode is going to be a mess, so let's do that again. This is The Science of Yesterday, a podcast where I tell you every nitty-gritty detail of how modern science came to be. For my fourth episode, I'm going to be trashing on Darwin. Just kidding, not really, but this is the second part of my History of Evolution episode. There's actually a bit more that still needs to be said in the context of the whole story of the History of Evolution before Darwin, mainly because all of the breakthroughs I'm going to be telling you really contributed to Darwin even thinking about writing the origin of species. Let's start in 1794, where Georges Cuvier, a French naturalist, joined the fledgling National Museum in Paris. In this position, he eventually became an expert in animal anatomy and using his enriching knowledge, he studied fossils from a completely new perspective. Kinda like when you put glasses on and all of a sudden everything just clears up. Apparently, for this man, a couple of bone fragments was all he needed to actually fully reconstruct the anatomy of an unknown species. I'm saying apparently because I don't actually know how accurate that claim is, but I think it's pretty cool to mention. In Cuvier's day, the mere thought of species going extinct was very touchy because... God. The argument against the phenomenon of extinction was that if God made a bunch of stuff, why would he then kill it off because they're all his creation? Personally, I do disagree with the statement because... You know when you're honing a skill and then you look back on your old stuff? Like for me, when I look back at the calligraphy that I did when I first started off, it's it's just so physically revolting to me that it I have to get rid of it. So I, I like throw it in the trash. So like if God just looked at some of the past stuff that they made and we're like, oh, what was I thinking? And he, they could just be gone it and their mass extinction event. You know, I think that's a pretty plausible scenario for the creator of the universe. Cuvier looked at elephant fossils found near Paris, and he noticed that they were different from the skeletons of living elephants. He refused to consider that there was some massive creature lying undiscovered, because how do you just miss an enormous fuzzy tusked animal with a trunk, you know? He came to the conclusion that these were separate species that had vanished, establishing the phenomenon of extinctions. He came up with this concept because he believed that the Earth was incredibly old, 
and his theory involved periodic revolutions or catastrophes that happened in the past due to natural causes. People initially thought that these revolutions were things like the biblical flood. Now, these theories were later replaced by theories like the Cretaceous Tertiary Extinction Event, like, for example, the comet that killed the dinosaurs, that kind of stuff. Extinction would prove to be a theory that serves as a powerful tool for biologists and was one of the puzzle pieces needed to put together the entire picture of the story of evolution. Later in 1809, Lamarck suggested his theory of evolution. He posed that simple life was spontaneously generated and driven up a ladder of complexity over time. Essentially, how much an organism changes depends on how much it uses or disuses its organs and traits. So, if an organism didn't need to see, Lamarck would suggest that it would lose its eyes over time, and these changes would then get passed down to the next generation. This is actually an incredibly incorrect theory. His logic about giraffes, for example, was like, oh, they have long necks because they eat food from a high place, so over time they stretched their necks out. And in reality, it's more like the food was too high and only the giraffes with long necks could eat, so that so then they ended up living, and then all of their kids also had long necks because the short-necked giraffes would have all just starved to death. You can't just manifest a long neck or anything. In short, adaptations are not inherited. Lamarck was appointed to be the assistant botanist at the Royal Botanical Gardens in France, known as the Jardin des Plantes. He was an underpaid assistant and lived in poverty up until 1793. But what happened in 1793? What changed? Well, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette went to the guillotine and the Jardin des Plantes became the Musée National d'Histoire Naturelle. This museum was run by 12 professors, one of whom was Lamarck, who was appointed professor of invertebrates. Now, he knew nothing about invertebrates when he got this position, but hey, I mean, fake it till you make it, I guess. And he did. He faked it till he made it, and he published multiple books on invertebrate zoology and paleontology. Philosophie Zoologique, published by Lamarck in 1809, states his theory of evolution. He was among the first to separate the Crustacea, Arachnida, and Annelida kingdoms from Insecta. Lamarck's mechanism of evolution is known as Lamarckism, and he thought that organisms are not passively altered by their environment, rather environmental changes result in changes in the needs of the organisms living in that environment, which changes their behavior. This changed behavior leads to them using specific traits or organs more or less than usual, like I mentioned before. The lesser use results in these structures shrinking over the years, eventually disappearing. And this was Lamarck's first law of evolution. Lamarck's second law of evolution is that these changes, which are really just adaptations and not physical genetic changes, are heritable. This is wrong. 
He viewed evolution as a process of increasing complexity, eventually leading to perfection. And in addition to that, he didn't believe in extinction because he believed that any species that disappeared simply evolved into another species. Nowadays, Lamarckian inheritance is kind of viewed in a negative light because, well, it was wrong. Robert Grant, the man I mentioned at the end of the last episode, along with Etienne Jeff Geoffroy. Etienne Geoffrey. Etienne. I don't know how to pronounce that. Why is there an O? It's spelled G E O F F R O Y. Geoffroy? Geoffrey? Geoffroy. Etienne Geoffroy Saint Hilaire, in 1818, developed on Lamarck's and Erasmus's ideas. Robert Grant was an early advocate of evolutionary thought, and he cited Erasmus Darwin's works in his advocacy. One of the notable things he did was proving that sea sponges are animals, as until he studied sea sponges, we thought that sea sponges were plants. While he was studying the sea sponges, he first met Charles Darwin, who at the time was a medical student at the University of Edinburgh. The two of them went on adventures collecting invertebrates off in the Firth of Forth for Grant's worth. The Firth of the Firth of Forth. What? I would like to, I just want to talk with whoever decided to call that estuary the Firth of Forth. Anyway, Grant also regularly like fanboyed about how much of an impact Erasmus Darwin had on him to Charles Darwin. But like I don't know, would that become weird if something like your friend was like, oh my god, your grandpa's so cool. I love your grandpa so much. That would be a little weirded out. Unfortunately, since Grant was a follower of Lamarckism, his reputation eventually died. Richard Owens is the man who kinda threw Grant into the gutter so much that he was eventually kicked out of the zoological society. Grant ended up living out the rest of his days as a poor doctor living in the slums, which is very sad. But on to Darwin. Charles Darwin, yes. Yes, this is the moment. This is the moment. This is. Let us begin. Charles Darwin was first drawn to science as a child interested in the animals and plants in his surroundings. He was a rich kid, and he came from a pretty long line of scientists like Erasmus Darwin. See, Darwin's dad was a doctor, and he actually wanted Charles to be a doctor like him, but apparently, Darwin would get queasy at the sight of blood, and because of this, he was like, maybe, maybe I'll do natural history instead. And... Darwin then went forward to study at Christ's College, later graduating in 1831 with a Bachelor of Arts. During his entire college career, his mentor was John Stevens Henslow. John Stevens Henslow was a botany professor and he recommended Darwin for a naturalist's position aboard the famous ship that took the trip to the Debac- Debac- <laughs> What? Debacabos. I know it sounds like I'm recording this at like 2am in the morning, but it's it's 9. It's just 9 o'clock. He recommended Darwin for a naturalist position aboard the famous ship that ended up taking a trip to the Galapagos Island, the HMS Beagle. 
The trip on this large boat took around five years and it was honestly the opportunity of a lifetime for Darwin, quite literally. It was the beginning of Darwin's entire career. Over the course of the trip on the HMS Beagle, Darwin collected many natural specimens like birds, plants, and fossils. The HMS Beagle made a stop at the Pacific Islands and the Galapagos Archipelago, which were one of the more significant locations that contributed to Darwin's research. The entire trip had such an impact on Darwin that he was pushed to develop a revolutionary theory for his time, the theory of evolution by natural selection. But first, he needed to test out his theories by running a few experiments on artificial selection. This began the story of Darwin's pigeons. With a group of pigeons, he managed to breed them to produce separate offspring with very selective, exaggerated features like feathery feet, a long neck, a robust chest, and more. And this experiment was a success. Since his theory of artificial selection was supported, there was no reason that the same phenomenon couldn't occur in nature, thereby solidifying his theory of natural selection. Darwin's theory of evolution outlines the process of natural selection, which, to remind you guys, is the theory that only animals born with the genetic features that gave them an advantage over other members of their own species are the ones that survive. And since they survived, these advantageous characteristics would then be passed down to subsequent generations. While observing all of these plants and animals all over the world, Darwin noticed some similarities in their structures and noted any variations. The similarity in structure pointed to the possibility of a common ancestor. A notable example is on the Galapagos Islands where he discovered the famed Galapagos finches. There are basically 18 different species of finch on one island and Darwin was shocked at the species diversity because there was no way each and every single one of these birds could have migrated from other areas as they are unique only to the Galapagos archipelago. Each of these finches differed in significant characteristics like beak size, and natural selection would prove to be a strong explanation in the differing beak sizes. For example, Birds that had a thin, shorter beak are unable to eat hard nuts and instead would feed on softer food like fruit and berries. Eventually, these birds passed on their characteristics to their offspring, evolving into the species with a thin beak. Similarly, birds with thick, strong beaks would be able to eat nuts as the beak is perfect for cracking shells. This group would evolve into the species that feeds on nuts, and all of their offspring would have hard, strong beaks. So while Darwin was developing his theory, he learned that another young naturalist, Alfred Russell Wallace, was developing similar ideas. He volunteered to send Wallace's ideas to a journal for immediate publication, and the two of them organized a joint announcement on their theory of evolution by natural selection. Around 1858, The Origin of Species was finally published. Darwin made it a point to credit the people before him who helped him develop and introduce his ideas, including Lamarck as the first person to bring attention to the topic. But you know who he didn't mention? 
his own grandfather. Erasmus Darwin was still quite the controversial figure at the time, so it could be that he made the decision deliberately so that people would at least read his book, but still, I mean, I think he should have been like his grandfather. Like, he seemed like old and hardened enough to deal with a little bit of abuse, you know? But honestly, he kind of blamed Erasmus for Lamarck's wrong views, which... That's so mean. Why? I think Lamarck came up with his own views, and plus... Darwin recognized Lamarck, like you can't blame your grandfather. Erasmus Darwin introduced the theory of evolution before him, and he got his reputation trashed because of it. Erasmus walked so Charles could run. For what it's worth though, Charles did try and redeem his grandfather's reputation by publishing a biography about him, so... Gold star, I guess? One gold star, only. One star review. One out of five. With Darwin's theory of evolution, there was bound to be some kind of strong pushback by the creationist squad. The Church of England in particular was absolutely outraged at the publication of his book as it directly contradicted the theory of divine creation. When it came to evolution, Darwin didn't make it some theory that was all nice and flowery like this bird became this bird, you know? He, he also applied it to people and I don't mean in the context like humans are related to apes and all of us came from one common ancestor like he did talk about that but his theory of evolution basically justified things like sexism and racism it should be noted that he didn't act out of malice like Haha, with this theory i a rampant racist will make everyone racist with the power of science like it wasn't out of hatred Racism is racism, and it was still an incredibly incorrect line of thought that was extremely problematic with some pretty impactful consequences. A lot of Darwin sympathizers, upon hearing people criticize Darwin for his racist views, often argued that, well, Darwin was against slavery and a staunch abolitionist, so he wasn't a racist. They were right. Darwin was against slavery, but like, honey, that's the bare minimum. He was racist. You can you can be against unpaid labor and still be a racist. He strongly believed that there was some kind of racial hierarchy, and he presented it as a matter of science. Racism was incredibly common in Darwin's writing, particularly in his documentation of his visit to Tierra de Fuego in South America where he encountered the Fuegians. He liked to describe Fuegians and non-Caucasians as savages of the lowest grade and quote miserable degraded savages and these are direct quotes. This isn't even the tip of the iceberg, okay? There is more. I'm quite literally just getting started and what a great start this is. He also believed in the intellectual inequality of the races. Now Alfred Wallace, on the other hand, even though he did work with Darwin, his theories didn't point to any kind of human racial hierarchy. He said that, quote, the savage possess a brain but very little inferior to members of learned societies. 
So the wording and rhetoric is definitely not okay, let me make that clear, but at the very least, it is clear that he considered humans as largely equal in intellect and just in general. Wallace sent his work to Darwin for proofreading, and Darwin's response was equivalent to that of an angry high school English teacher. And he, he did the English teacher thing where he wrote NO in capital letters with many exclamation marks to Wallace's polite suggestion of humans being equal. So again, people defending Darwin from people who call him a racist with the slavery argument, in my opinion, don't have much basis. Darwin's own ideas and theories about the inequality of races was literally the basis of years of oppression people of color faced. Because now, there were facts to back up the reasons for their behavior. But on top of racism, let's let's add some let's add some classism onto the mix, okay? Because racism was not enough. No, he he wanted he wanted to get spicy, and he looked at poor people and was like, "You are, yeah, you're less evolved. You're poor because you're less evolved." Darwin's theory that the poor were supposedly less evolved was one of the theories that inspired eugenics. I'm just. I'm kind of exasperated at how damaging some of his theories were, like Darwin even supported eugenics, cause let's add some eugenics into the mix at this point, why not? Let's just do it. Darwin's own cousin, Francis Galton, the man who discredited Darwin's pangenesis theory, came up with a eugenics theory to which Darwin responded, quote, genius tends to be inherited i'm sorry huh genius tends to be inherited uh no i think the last genius in your family was your grandfather okay i'm just going to list what other things charles darwin has done i'm not even gonna bother adding in any essay words like okay number one he used indigenous populations as support for his theory of evolution great oh my god he literally made a list of inferior humans. I'm sorry? What? Who just decides to, like, make a list of inferior How do you just sit down and decide, yes, this is what I shall do today. Who is not as good as me? And then write it down on a piece of paper. Darwin claimed that the Fuegians possessed the, quote, mental maturity of young children, and this was in response to them not knowing what a gun was, or rather, not reacting to a gun the way people who know what a gun is react to guns. Like, okay, that's not what happened. They, they just didn't know what a gun was, and if some dude came up to you with a weapon that you had never seen before in your entire life and you didn't even know it was a weapon, like, would you run away? What if aliens come in with guns disguised as bananas? Would you know then? Would you run away? And also, in case you hadn't noticed in my commentary, you know, he commonly referred to indigenous populations as savages and barbarians, which is, it's not good. I know it may seem like my hot take, I don't think it's a hot take, um, like Shane and Ryan from BuzzFeed Unsolved say, a cold take, lukewarm, 
it's incredibly biased you it may seem like it's incredibly biased but you know people could be like hey cut him some slack you know what if this was the normal rhetoric and reactions of people at the time i think it's still valid to call them out on it even if it's like 200 300 years later and if that were the case sure you know i'll leave some some leeway but it was not the case at all for comparison, Charles Wilkes, who for context was no saint either, he was an American explorer and he doesn't have a squeaky clean record, but Wilkes met the Fuegians a few years before Darwin. His records of the visit was more along the lines of, wow, these people are so cool, they like to eat a lot and they also have nice teeth. They like music, so I played them Yankee Doodle, but they didn't like Yankee Doodle, so I played Bonnets of Blue and they liked that. Darwin's account, on the other hand, was like, they tried to imitate us and mimic us. They were all naked. They were extremely happy and cheerful and anything but miserable. If we could have avoided contrasting their condition with our own. To paraphrase, they seemed happy but obviously could not have been because we are more civilized. Look, if someone lives different than you do, that has no reflection on their level of evolution. How do you just jump to conclusions like that? You look at someone who just laughs a little weird and you're like, I'm less involved. You're lower, you're lower in the hierarchy of humans because your laugh is weird. I don't understand. But hey, you know, we've touched on his racism and his classism. Let's talk about his sexism. And I'm going to put it as it is. He thought women were inferior women apparently have similar characteristics to lower races like intellect darwin also said that men were more evolved because men were quote more powerful in body and in mind and he thought that evolution was in the male's hands not the females which by the way is wrong like scientifically wrong in countless species it's always the females of the species doing the choosing of the male so they do play quite a large role in selecting what traits are passed down to each generation of that species. And if the male isn't up to the mark? For some species, like the spider, if the female is unimpressed, that male is eaten. Their genetic lineage is gone. So, mate selection plays a pretty large role in evolution. He also somehow got to the conclusion that women skulls are similar to gorilla skulls and therefore women are less involved and inferior. Many Darwinists of the time thought instinct and emotions dominated women's behavior because they were less evolved. They considered emotion to be a woman's greatest weakness and Darwinists largely ignored every other factor that influences character like environment, culture, family, social conditioning, and the fact that women at the time didn't really have a chance to show their quote physical and intellectual power. So it was kind of like this positive feedback cycle, because this whole thing would continue precisely because of theories like Darwin's. There's many more problematic things that Darwin has said and I can't really cover it all in one podcast episode. Because this is a science history podcast, not a, you know, let's all join hands and let's all hate Darwin and talk about why he's bad podcast. But if you do want to know more, 
um, I really suggest reading The Dark Side of Darwin. It's a pretty, it's a really good book. Now, Darwin's work sparked a number of things. His theory also added fuel to the creationism-evolution debate. See, before the origin of species, a book was published called Vestiges on the Natural History of Creation in 1844. It was by a man named Robert Chambers who at the time published it anonymously. This book largely paved the way for the success of Darwin's book, and many theologians reacted to Darwin's theory, like Charles Hodge, who said that Darwin's theories were equivalent to atheism. The controversy was further fueled by one of Darwin's greatest supporters at the time, Thomas Huxley, who said that Christianity is the quote, compound of some of the best and some of the worst elements of paganism and Judaism, molded in practice by the innate character of certain people of the Western world. So that definitely didn't help calm things down, like at all, and it literally did the opposite. There was even an entire trial in America called the Scopes Trial. What happened was that public schools began teaching that man evolved from apes like Darwin had described. In response to this, Tennessee banned the Butler Act in 1925, where they banned any teachings contradicting what was in the Bible. The Scopes Trial was where this law was countered, but the Tennessee Supreme Court kept the law which only got repealed later on in 1967. In 1962, a book was published by John C. Whitcomb and Henry M. Morris called The Genesis Flood, The Biblical Record and Its Scientific Implications, where they literally argued that creation was six days long and we lived with the dinosaurs, like, like in the Flintstones. Morris concurrently became a very prominent speaker spreading his anti-evolutionary ideas. Thomas Huxley, on the other hand, made an entire club for Darwin called the X-Club. Around the 1870s though, natural selection became a fairly mainstream explanation for evolution, and as time went forward, with the rediscovery of Mendelian genetics like I highlighted in my genetics episode, the new theory of evolution ended up sparking a massive debate between a group of scientists. Now, if you want to know more about this, I suggest you go listen to that episode, but in short, it got very messy. So messy that a physical resolution, like a full-on fight, like fist fight, was suggested for the scientists to sort through their differences. The debate was essentially about whether or not evolution is driven by variation as a result of mutation. This debate was kind of quashed by Thomas Hunt Morgan, whose experiments with fruit flies provided the proof needed to support the theory that variation is, in fact, a key driving factor of evolution. Now, by the 20th century, we had quite the significant developments in the field of molecular biology, and more importantly, genetics. With a stronger understanding of genetics, the theory of evolution by natural selection gained more and more ground, and we were finally able to put together a more comprehensive and coherent picture of the mechanisms of evolution. Around the 1930s to the 1940s, there was an evolution theory being pushed forward called modern synthesis. 
This was basically a combination of Darwin's theory of evolution with Mendel's ideas of heredity using the power of math. It redefined evolution as changes in allele frequencies within populations. Evolution was said to be driven by processes like natural selection, genetic drift, gene flow, and mutation pressure. Genetic drift is a phenomenon where the frequency of genetic traits within a specific population changes purely by chance. Imagine you had like a group of ants and say 50% of these ants were white and another 50% of these ants were black. Now, say someone accidentally stepped on this group of ants and it just so happened that most of the white ants were killed in this devastating tragedy. By complete chance, this population of ants is now about 95% black and the subsequent generations will also be mainly black with some color variation because of chance. That's basically the principle of genetic drift. Gene flow is more the migration of populations with specific characteristics, like the physical branching off of a population. So let's revisit these ants, okay? Now, say there was a massive crack on the ground. On one side of the crack was the black ants, and on the other side is the white ants. One day, a leaf would happen to fall onto the crack, forming a bridge of sorts. Now, certain members of the white and black ant populations decide to go on an adventure, and their populations mix. The black ant brings its genetic traits to the white population, and vice versa. This creates one population with lots of genetic variation, which, if you remember, is very important for evolution. Finally, mutation pressure is more just an increased frequency of a mutation occurring. It's not known to be a very strong driver of evolution though. And you already know what natural selection is, so these four mechanisms were set to impact gene frequencies in a population, and modern synthesis proposed that they were the drivers of evolution. Later in the early 1960s, Linus Pauling and Emily Zuckerkandl, two biochemists, were able to determine that the differences in the genetic sequences coding for homologous proteins would be used to actually trace evolution. They were able to calculate exactly when two species diverge, which is really amazing. What they discovered is called the molecular clock hypothesis. Our DNA is like a book. Just by looking at regions of homology in the DNA of different species, we are able to determine what species are related and further analyses can even trace when these mutations that caused the species divergence even occurred. The molecular clock hypothesis was later given more support by Moto Kimura, a Japanese biologist in 1969, who suggested that most mutations are neither harmful nor helpful and that genetic drift, rather than natural selection, causes change. This was called the neutral mutations theory. After the molecular clock hypothesis, the advances in the field of genetics and in microbiology were used heavily to determine the physical mechanisms of evolution. And by physical mechanisms, I don't mean the processes of natural selection, more so processes like gene transfer, gene duplication, chromosomal duplication, and so on. These are the hidden players 
kind of behind the scenes players of processes like natural selection. They result in the genetic variation needed to drive evolution. Going into the 21st century, there is currently a lot of research being conducted on epigenetic inheritance. Epigenetic inheritance is the study of heritable changes not actually caused by an underlying DNA sequence. Essentially, epigenetics is the mechanism involved in the development and differentiation of an organism. The mechanism of epigenetics is the change in the levels of genetic expression. If there's more or less of a specific protein being expressed, the result can be a phenotypic difference in the organism. Epigenetics has shown that in some cases, non-genetic changes can be inherited and these changes can help organisms adapt to local conditions. So right now, currently, we've kind of figured out some of the mechanisms of evolution but we're still trying to figure out exactly where life even began. Which organism is everyone's ancestor? What biochemical magic occurred to create the very first form of life? There's a couple theories, and I'm going to be telling you my favorites. One is the RNA world hypothesis. RNA is the more unstable cousin of DNA. So DNA basically does the bare minimum, you know, it just stores information, but RNA... RNA is unstable, but it can get stuff done. RNA can store information since it directly codes for proteins, but a cooler thing is that RNA can act as an enzyme. The molecule just kind of folds in on itself and is like, yep, I can do things by myself now. I've put my big boy pants on and it can do stuff like it can it can like catalyze reactions. It's very cool. But RNA is just a biomolecule. So scientists have suggested that the natural selection of different RNA systems working together led to the gradual development of the first complex organism. My favorite theory, though, is that life began from my favorite, you know, little robot guys, viruses. It's been theorized that viruses were the first kind of prototype of life and that gradual evolution of the viruses led to the development of cells. Remember the very large viruses from my very first episode? The Mimi virus, Mama virus, Pandora virus? These viruses are bigger than bacterial cells, which is quite peculiar since viruses normally are much, much smaller than bacterial cells. See, the mama virus actually gave birth to the Mimi virus, which eventually became the cell. That's why it's called the mama virus. I'm just kidding, that's not what happened, but it would be kind of cool if it did, right? The large virus that has caused the most excitement is actually the pithovirus because in addition to it being larger than bacteria, it's actually a little more independent than most viruses out there. Now this is really fascinating because if you remember, viruses are entirely dependent on having a host in order to survive. The pithovirus is a virus with around 500 genes some of which are used for tasks like replicating DNA 
and protein synthesis. Usually, viruses hijack the machinery of the cells they infect to carry out these tasks. So the fact that the pithovirus has the genes encoding the proteins for these very tasks is just mind-blowing. People also argue that the ancestors of modern viruses had the raw material necessary for cells to develop. The presence of viruses like the pithovirus provided the evidence scientists needed to posit the theory of simple virus-like organisms having the capability of becoming something much more complex. The theory that viruses were kind of the first living organisms is called the virus world theory, and it is very similar to the RNA world theory. The virus world theory states that the earliest pieces of genetic material were probably small pieces of RNA with very few genes. They likely parasitized other pieces of genetic material to make copies of themselves. These parasitic genetic elements stayed unable to replicate by themselves, eventually evolving into modern-day viruses. So in theory, if viruses evolved from cells, they are expected to be less diverse. But as Valerian Dolia, a virologist at Oregon State University says, quote, where diversity lies, origin lies. This is because cells should contain all the genes available to viruses, which they don't. This is proven by the fact that viruses are way more diverse when it comes to reproduction, where cells can only replicate in two ways, while viruses have many other methods at their disposal. So, we might be related to viruses, and I think that's really cool. In essence, to give the entire comprehensive story of evolution, we need to pinpoint the origin of life, and lots and lots of research is being put into that. This is still a developing story, so I'm going to have to leave you guys on a cliffhanger. Because who knows, you know? Maybe we'll actually discover the origin of life, and then there'll be a history of the origin of life episode. I think that'll be really, that'll be really fun. But yeah, that that's the end of this episode and the end of my little evolution two-parter. This was pretty fun to research and equally painful just because as I uncovered more and more things about Darwin, I just got more and more horrified. But I really hope you liked this two-parter and make sure you tune in to the next episode because I will be having my very first guest and the collaboration will be out of this world. So until next time, bye!